U.S.-China tariff war put on ice just in time for Christmas. The U.N. Climate Change Summit ends with no new commitments. As we look ahead to a new decade, what is to come? You are listening to the Business Extra podcast, coming from the Nationals Newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I am Kelsey Warner, Future Editor. With me is guest host, John Garvey, the global financial services industry leader at PwC. Hi, John. How are you? Good. Thanks for being here. Happy to be here. Brief trip in from New York? Uh, no, actually, I was in uh, I was in Europe pretty much all of last week, so I've been more or less in, in the EMEA region for the last uh, 10, 11 days. So we've got Mr. Garvey on the road. <laughs> exactly. So we're going to talk a little bit later on um, about what you're working on at PwC, but for now, let's get straight into the news. This week, the U.S. and China agreed to a phase one trade deal, temporarily freezing their tariff war and prompting the biggest rally in oil prices in three months. But so far, nothing's actually been signed. So what do we think of this latest development? Well, there, there is incentive on both sides to come to some at least phase one agreement, I think it's been termed. Um, and uh, certainly uh, there appears to be some momentum uh, in, the, in the talks and, and, a, and a phase one deal. We'll see what happens kind of in the, in the, in the future here. But, you know, the, the bigger the bigger question here is really around um, the the whole question of um, Western supply, you know, supply chains of companies and, and you know, do they keep them in China or do they move them out? Right. So they said that there's going to be some teeth put into this sort of intellectual property sharing mm-hmm. sure. and this whole idea of kind of forced IP sharing with China if you're going to do business there. Right. Do you think that that's actually feasible? I mean, nothing's really been written down or... Yes, so it's uh, it's a great question. I think in certain sectors, the Chinese probably feel that they have technology now that's superior mm-hmm. to other people in the world. So th- they might not need the technology sharing in some areas, but some areas they do. So it'll be very look. It'll be very very interesting to to watch how this uh, evolves. I mean, there are different ways of acquiring technology, right? You can you can have someone partner with you and share it. You can buy it uh, or you can steal it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And in the past, I mean, they've sort of played by the book a bit by basically saying you need to enter into a joint venture with a domestic company in order to come in and do business here. And through that, we can sort of eye your playbook. Um, Are there other – so what are the other avenues – so if you're saying that they're going to steal it, I mean, that gets into this whole idea. Well, of... it's been proven that there, there's quite a bit of technology. <laughs> right. And then you get into this whole idea of, you know, Chinese tech in American infrastructure and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And as we get into 5G and AI, really implementation at a grand scale over the next decade, do you see kind of cooperation happening or do you see kind of further isolation on both sides? Well, I think it mirrors the broader trends in the world, right, of, of regionalization and nationalization versus globalization. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but national infrastructure and communications have obviously, particularly in the world of 5G, which is really what we're talking about now in, in, as the big issue, is seen as, you know, absolutely critical to national security uh, by some and by others not. So, uh, for those that view it as critical national infrastructure and national security concerns, um, you know, I think we're going to see further um, nationalization or, or, you know, you use your allies' uh, technology. Having said that, right now, there are pieces of the 5G infrastructure that can only come from China. They're the only 
provider in town in, in a few areas, uh, is my understanding. I'm not a telecommunications <laughs> expert, but that's No, you're what, a financial services told. expert. Exactly, exactly. Um, so we'll, we'll try to steer, steer it in that direction. I, I can't make any promises for, for what's... We'll try our best. Yeah, exactly. We'll try our best. <laughs> I mean, the other outcome of the U.S.-China sort of step forward or whatever you want to call it, the detente, is that oil prices rallied up to $65 a barrel for the first time since the Aramco attacks in September. Um, they've actually stayed at 65 um, at this open today, I think, as I was walking in, that that was still true. Um, so in terms of reassuring markets, it seems like um, President Xi and President Trump have both sort of been able to do that with this almost symbolic gesture ahead of Christmas. But I wonder if, uh, you know, any more talks will happen before the election for Trump. Is, is there sort of this mixed, well, I, I think it's both, mixed motivation? Both sides have to plot out their political strategy, right? So the Chinese have to decide whether they are, will take a risk of waiting for, until after the election and perhaps get someone who negotiates more to their liking. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that'll happen, by the way, but but that's what the judgment they need to make. And then probably President Trump will need to make a judgment about whether he wants to do a deal prior to the election and use that as, uh, you know, to gain positive momentum in the in the election process or in the election fight that he's in. He so. seems a pretty shrewd gamer, uh, gamesmanship in terms of... <laughs> he knows how to do a deal. He knows how to do a deal. No, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. And so um, I guess going back to Europe where you just were in mm-hmm. Madrid... Uh, Yesterday, they closed out the COP25 meeting, um, which is the major UN climate change meeting held every year. Um, took them two extra days to basically not come to any concrete resolutions. And so um, I just wonder kind of what you think about where we're at and what the state of play is in terms of, on the one hand, we have scientists raising alarm bells. On the other hand, global leaders governments are falling short. From a business perspective, do you think companies are starting to rise to the occasion where maybe governments are falling short? It's a great question. So as I said, I'm a financial services expert. So maybe um, I'll I'll share a little bit with what I'm seeing kind of happening on the ground. So, you know, there is some value to having overarching goals, which, which is what these summits tend to do. But I think what's more interesting is what's happening kind of on the ground. So even in the U.S., which pulled out of Paris, individual states and company, you know, most of Fortune 500 have committed to some kind of carbon neutrality or or significant reduction. Different states like California have instituted um, additional um, steps to, to, you know, reduce their carbon footprint. So there's a lot of things that are happening. I mean, you know, the U.S. overall has, I believe, I'm not, again, reduced its carbon, you know, input, uh, footprint quite a bit, mostly through conversion to natural gas from coal and mm-hmm. oil, right? So, um, and in financial services, what's interesting, and this isn't just a U.S. trend, but around the world, um, I've seen particularly, interestingly enough, and it's in all regions, including the United States, in the last um, six to nine months, a real growth in terms of uh, understanding and incorporating ESG into uh, investments and uh, investment objectives of these asset so managers. When you say ESG for sort of the lay Environmentally reader. sustainable growth, I believe. Envi- is, is right. Okay. Environmentally for. sustainable yes. growth. All right. Yes. So, I mean, for example, I mean, I was reading this morning, Goldman Sachs has updated their environmental policy. They're going to decline financing for upstream Arctic oil exploration. And... Um, 
they're declining any financing of new thermal coal mines. Meanwhile, they've set a target for $750 billion for climate transition finance. Um, I mean, that's just one example of, you know, a company coming out kind of almost in response to the news cycle. Um, are the, you, you're speaking to ESGs. Can you talk about any other kind of concrete examples of steps financial services companies in particular can take in terms of stepping up? Sure. So, I mean, we're seeing kind of widespread either consideration or, you know, some people aren't making big public announcements, but um, there's certainly a lot of discussion and debate about um, what constitutes um, environmentally unfriendly lending uh, mm-hmm. and what what will the banks do in terms of um, financing companies that are, you know, viewed to be um, environmentally unfriendly. And I think kind of like a theme that was emerging this year and I think one that we're going to see in the next few years to come is sort of the stakeholder versus shareholder tension mm-hmm. of what sort of responsibility do we have to stakeholders and is it equal to a shareholder because the last few decades have been all about the shareholder. So how are we are, are you seeing this sort of rise to a balance or is that sort of I don't know. Well, I think it's going to be it's going it's going to be interesting because um you know, remember the shareholders, a lot of them are individuals and it could be a pension fund that is a teacher's pension fund or a state pension fund. So it, it ultimately trickles down at some level to individuals, right? Not uh, so, so the question is, you know, what, what price is there to pay in terms of returns to achieve a better result? And I think that's the whole question. That's probably why the current uh, – you know, took two days to kind of agree to nothing new because there are people that are concerned about the economic impacts of some of the promises and goals that are being set. Right. Um, it's the same thing with investment returns. So are people willing, you know, is there a is there a way to achieve the same investment returns with a green portfolio? And I wonder, are we becoming more, are you saying that we're becoming more reactionary or more... Um, when people are at negotiating tables anywhere, be it governments, companies, world leaders, are they actually thinking about what Twitter is going to say and what the stock market is going to say kind of in tandem? And is it really, is it changing behavior? Well, it certainly it certainly is changing behavior and considerations. I, I know ourselves, I mean, we, we've become quite active users of, of social media and we think very, you know, carefully and train our people in terms of how to use mm-hmm. these are very powerful tools, um, and they're powerful, you know, in a good way, and they're powerful in ways that can can cause. Uh, right, they damage. they really move the needle for good or yeah. ill. Yeah. Um, yes, they do. And I, I think your point on COP twenty five kind of slowing down for two days, kind of as they were thinking about what the ramifications would be to them really scaling back some of these goals, um, and some of the major polluters actually not rising to the occasion of setting tougher targets. Um, I think it's a really interesting thing to think about. <laughs> I think the point here, and and you know that that we can't forget, and this is why it's very important to bring the best minds into this process and and allow uh, entrepreneurship to enter into this process is probably the thing that starts to change the needle is innovation here, mm. and getting innovation into the process of of you know creating a more green less carbon based footprint 
uh, is is very important. So this is also where the funding of different sure um, investing in and, computer and, science, investing in you know engineering. I was talking. I sat down mm-hmm. last week with Bill Gross, who is a serial entrepreneur in the United States. Um, he's his new venture has been backed by Bill Gates Ventures, yep. and he's basically brought together a team of like twenty Caltech MIT scientists to. Uh, concentrate solar power to a degree that it can actually manufacture, be used in the manufacturing of cement and steel, can also be used to actually split molecules to create hydrogen fuel. Mm-hmm. These are two major breakthroughs that could potentially have real, like, you know, long-term effects on greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm. And he was practically quivering <laughs> with the excitement. I mean, like, he was like the Paul Revere of like, this is coming. And he was here last week kind of just sharing this breakthrough with whomever would listen in the UAE um, at the SALT conference. But anyway, I was just, I was really struck by what he said about computer science is actually now catching up with mechanical engineering and starting to exceed. So before where we were kind of innovating on climate change around, you know, well, how should we build the panels? the solar panels or can we put it out in the ocean or now it's actually you can use AI, the real-time use of 5G to actually get things to move and work more efficiently. And so there's... Consume way less energy. And consume way less energy in the process. And so there's Mm -hmm. real opportunity and upshot to be had for those willing to invest, he was saying, in in this kind of new new field, new frontier. Um, I I found it very exciting and sort of reason for optimism. I, I don't think bureaucrats and government officials are going to solve our problem. I think probably <laughs> entrepreneurs and innovation is really probably mm-hmm. the answer. And it ha- as by the way, as it has been to many of the of the problems that have been solved. Totally, I completely, I completely agree. Uh, moving over to your work, mm-hmm. we can we can move yes. a bit off the news and talk a little bit more about. Okay. So your, um, how would you describe your job actually? It's funny. People ask me this question. I, I'm really I, – I, I describe myself as the chief client officer of, of the financial services business for PwC because what I really do is I, I spend my time visiting and working with our team serving the firm's most important clients around the world. So we have um, you know, $13 billion business in financial services. We have 60,000 people in over 100 countries in the world. And uh, we have uh, nearly 100 global priority clients and a number of national and regional priority clients. So that's why I'm traveling quite a bit. Um, so, so I would imagine a lot of your job is actually listening and trying to gain insight based off of what you're hearing from that from the industry. Is yes. that, would you say that's a fair characterization? I'd say it's a, it, it's a, it's a bit of a trade. So uh, I'm obviously very interested in what I hear uh, and 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 the views my clients share with me, and I'm enriched by those conversations. On the other hand, they tend to um, enjoy and and probe me on certain things that I've seen in my travel. So I would call it, you know, generally a fair exchange uh, of information. <laughs> right. So what are you seeing as we move into this next decade of what? Where are we going? What are the major trends that you're seeing in financial services that are either disrupting or reshaping how we interact either? Sure. Um, so I, I would I would point to a couple of key uh, presentations or points on this that I, I actually presented last week uh, to an audience in Zurich. Uh, number one, there is a massive 
productivity challenge in financial services today. So as as we digitize and, and financial institutions kind of catch up from the lost decade they've had just dealing with the aftermath of the financial crisis, other industries like retail and um, you know, different you know, kind of consumer industries all have modernized and, and become much more efficient, much more digital, et cetera. When you say productivity crisis, what mm-hmm. does that actually look like? Well, what it means is that um, if you look at the most efficient players in financial services uh, who have invested in the technology, they tend to be significantly more efficient and more productive and generate a client kind of experience similar to what um, an Amazon or one of the mm-hmm. um, you know major platform companies is is delivering. Um, the ones that are laggards are, are are you know kind of stuck in 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 a pre-platform kind sure. of model. Right? Yeah. So, what are the biggest technologies that you're seeing that are really enabling the best performers? So it, it would it, it would go all the way from um, just robotic process automation mm-hmm. to in the most you know complex state certain elements of algorithmic um, modeling and artificial intelligence. So predictive making recommendations. Correct. You can see that in, uh, for example, wealth advisory, where you have robo advisors that you know for certain types of clients give the, I would call it democratization of of investment advice to people who couldn't afford it before, but actually you're getting very high quality advice mm-hmm. um, basically built on algorithms and data as opposed to a wealth advisor. Anecdotal, or, right. Um, the other thing that I saw in your work was this idea of monitoring to improve productivity. Yes. And <laughs> I think it's it, that that's such a both personal, like we all keep to-do lists and we try to, you know, basically go to bed at night knowing that we did a, a good day's work. But what does it look like for, for you? It's a great question. It's a big cultural challenge, right? Yeah. So people immediately go to the big brother, big yeah, sister. Yeah, I mean, these days view. I think we all kind of assume we're being monitored in one way or another. <laughs> so, so what we try to help people understand is by helping us understand what people are working on today – we can help make them more productive. If we see that they're spending, their supervisor is is putting them into a lot of meetings, we don't know that unless we have some of the data and we can talk to the supervisor and suggest that maybe you can shorten your meetings, you could do things more efficient. It also allows you to really identify the productivity stars based upon real data versus some of the laggards. And the laggards doesn't necessarily mean they're bad people. Maybe they need more training. Maybe your your more productive people have figured out shortcuts on something, you know, that they can share with the people who haven't figured those out. So so we've actually in in reality been able to turn this into a very positive um, situation once people kind of get over that initial fear. I think like radical transparency is sort of almost a byproduct of Silicon Valley speak. Mm. What you're sort of saying is that it actually needs to be honed into the corporate culture 
Yes. On a kind of hourly basis. And so when you're saying monitoring, are you say, are you saying that people are self-reporting? Yeah, they're or? self-reporting. Mm-hmm. And and you think about, you know, what are the elements of your job and how much time are you spending on each of those elements on a daily or weekly or monthly basis? And how does that compare to what your supervisor thinks you're spending right. your time on? How does it compare to where you would like to spend your time, mm-hmm. right? Um, and And how can people quantify what um, wasted time, you know, is I think all of us know about what happens when, um, you know, we have a supervisor that wastes our time. I think we all know what happens when we feel like we don't get the right training to tackle a problem or some new technology is introduced and you have to figure it out and you stumble right. for, for a while until you figure it out. So I think all of us have been in those kinds of situations. This identifies those things very quickly and, and build helps you build a business case for getting the right training and support that you need. I think a big buzzword of the last year and is going to be a theme for the next decade is this idea of upskilling. Yes. And it's one of the, I think, probably the biggest challenges for companies to accurately identify what skills actually need to be <laughs> upped. Yes. Um, so what are you seeing in the data in terms of biggest demand for what skills in financial services? Yeah, so great question. So we're doing um, an upskilling program ourselves at PwC, and we're also working with the same program with our clients. Started in the United States with about um, 60,000 people. And we're teaching them, first of all, we assess their overall digital fitness. We have something called the digital fitness app. So you get a score based on different dimensions um, when you're tested on this app. And then that starts to design kind of a customized program to improve your digital fitness. But in terms of the kinds of skills that we're seeing, a lot of it is um, teaching people how to use some of these very powerful um, technology tools that are available for non-technologists. So really, if you think about it, you know, however many years ago, um, if someone could, you know, use Excel, uh, that was, people said, wow, <laughs> you know, you know, now it's, now it's baseline. I allowed, I allowed Excel to just age out and, there now, you go. and now I'm current again because I just, I just <laughs> there you go, there you go. Well, this is the next wave. This Here's the next, the next okay, wave. I can catch this one. This is the next All wave. All right, great, very exciting. <laughs> John, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. That's it for today. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or any platform you listen on. And if you have something nice or constructive to say, please do leave a review. Thank you to our producers, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. And thank you for listening. <laughs>